Okay, yeah. wow, that's the first time. Yeah, so, dude, so live, on live, not live, but just so everybody knows, uh, we're rebooting because um, I failed to hit the big red button that we always talk about on every episode. So we're starting this thing over. Um, it is, uh, we've talked about how it's a good morning and it's not a good morning, and we had a bunch of banter about how I'm in Texas and we have our own time zones. Um, but uh, we are, it's uh, slightly embarrassing. So, uh, but we love to embarrass ourselves with you and share it exactly how it happens. We like to be honest with our audience. So we've never lost a recording, but we did just lose um, five minutes of brilliance. Um, <laughs> and so let's, uh, let's, we're starting over. And um, so, you know, welcome. This is the Hot Isle Podcast. I've said that twice today. Uh, and I am Brian Carpenter, one of your co-hosts. Again, deja vu. And with me... Yes, Brent Piatti, good morning. Yeah, so you heard the whole thing about he says good morning, and I'm like, dude, it's almost, it's like I'm hungry again. It's time for second lunches almost for me. Um, so well, you did work out today. You had I chest did. day today. Yeah, we had chest day. So don't interrupt this. I'm, you know, I'm swole. I'm swole, and I'm a little mad at myself for not hitting the record button. But anyways, we are going to plow right into a show about security. Uh, we had a little banter, witty banter about the fact that I love security, but I know nothing about it. Um, and so we are going to intro this show again. And the goal of this show is to discuss how hitting the record button is critical, but also to discuss the misunderstood and misconstrued yet ridiculously important role of security when it comes to your cloud infrastructure, renting it, it you know, on-prem, off-prem, especially off-prem, right? When it's somebody else's, it's a, you know, those hyperscaler stories, the, you know, service providers, SaaS service providers, all those things. We may dive into your on-prem. We may dive into your laptop, and frankly, we may dive into your personal information security. We don't know where it's going to go, um, but what we did do is we brought somebody who knows security uh, better than the rest of us, and so luckily, we have Matt McCormick with us. Matt, welcome back again, again. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure, my pleasure to be here. So where we were five minutes ago uh, is we were at, you know, really kind of asking you to introduce yourself, so please, if you would, tell us what you're doing today. Uh, and as I joked about earlier, I thought it was a brilliant joke. We're going to rewind kind of your job history until you tell us to stop because it's a secret. Uh, so tell us what's going on today for you. Yeah, sure. So uh, currently I am the, the CISO for, uh, for VirtuStream. And prior to uh, being here in VirtuStream uh, and you know, moved over recently after, after the, the Dell EMC merger became, became final, I was the the CISO for EMC. Um, rewind a little bit before that, I was with RSA for a couple of years before moving uh, over to EMC. So it's been with the family, all the same family. I think if, uh, you know, if you look at my resume, it looks like I get fired a lot. No, I, I really don't. Uh, I, I'm staying with the same company. I'm in the same family. Um, but before coming into the now Dell Technologies family, uh, I was the CISO at the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, before that, I was running cybersecurity operations at the IRS, um, and before that, I was a cryptologist in the Navy. So I've been doing this same thing for a long time, just in different roles, different organizations, and you know, the world has changed vastly in this field in the 20 years that I've been in it. Yeah, and that's what we're going to get into, by the way. And uh, I do want to warn all the listeners, we've had VirtuStream around here, Sean Jennings, came on before the, the merger was even complete and did a fantastic, fantastic job explaining their offerings. That is not what this is about. Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate to have Matt within the uh, family of which uh, a company that both Brent and I and Matt all work for, if you look at the Dell Technologies family. But 
Uh, Matt's background in security, especially when it looks at cloud security and kind of those thought processes, is the entire goal of this conversation. We may or may not reference Dell Technologies again, but that's not the intent of the conversation this time. Um, you know, so given that, I, I actually want to talk a little bit, right? So, I mean, you, Brett and I were joking about this earlier, and I'm stealing Brent's joke. You worked at the IRS. Like, is there a harder site to secure? Uh, a less, I mean, I mean, not frankly, it's the only four-letter word I know that's not spelled with four letters, right? So yeah. it's like, tell us, tell yeah. us a little bit about that. You know, I'll, I'll tell you. You know, it, it is it is one of those organizations that uh, you know. I like big things, and most people don't realize the size and scope of the IRS. And that the IRS really is a data and IT focused agency. You know, you can't process everything they do. You know, everybody thinks it's, you know, every time tax filing season shows up, the news will show this video clip of all these people processing paper in the Atlanta office. That's like maybe 1% of what they do. Everything else they do is processing hundreds of millions of, you know, electronic filings storing that data, you know, going back, you know, decades, business logic, mainframe. I mean, it is a, it is an IT, you know, behemoth. People don't often realize that, but I do like to say, you know, even, even working there, when I worked there, every time I would get, you know, something in the mail that had, you know, from the IRS up in the upper left corner, still makes your heart skip a beat. <laughs> so even though I was an employee, you still, it still makes you take a little little step back, but I like to say, you know, and, and you know, as people have have talked about, the you know, we security people are not always the most loved people in the room, and so I like to say, you know, try being the security guy at the IRS because the whole country hates your agency and everybody in the agency hates you because you're the security guy. So I mean, you're down to like blood relatives, and you know, that's about it. So it, it was an interesting challenge, but um, you know. There was a lot of pride, and, and I will say one of the things with the IRS is, you know, you knew what your mission was. You know, you had a very defined mission, and that does make uh, doing your day job easier when you know why you're there. Well, you stayed there for six-plus years, so obviously you, you enjoyed the work. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was yeah. something that you're passionate about. You must also Yeah, and, and it, was, it, it was a good time to be there from the sense of in the mid-2000s, you know, we were transitioning into web we were migrating into Java-based apps online. So that was a very dynamic time to be there. Yeah, you must have a lot of uh, you know, personal fortitude and self-worth if you can be the most hated person in the most hated corporation in the world to come out <laughs> still smiling and laughing. So that's, uh, that says a lot about you. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, though, it gives you a perspective on every other job you do. You know, you're generally in a good mood for the rest of your life because, you know, in general, you're not dealing with that anymore. Well, so I can certainly appreciate that. You and I both have military backgrounds. Um, you brought up the fact that you did cryptology in the U.S. Navy for a while. Uh, looks like you were an officer. Um, so tell us about that job. And, and then previously, I mean, you had to go to school probably, right, to become an officer before yep. joining the Navy. Um, so what got you into, uh, into technology and specifically cryptology? Yeah, actually, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, a fascinating story filled with, you know, years of just focusing on this, which, you know, of course, none of it is true. It actually wound up that I'm colorblind. And so my, somehow in, when, they, when, when I got my ROTC scholarship in high school and they did my physical, somehow they missed the, you know, not being able to see red and green is kind of, you know, kind of a negative. It's just because it tells you which way the ship is going, right? So my senior year in college, so I was, a, I was actually an industrial engineer. 
So my my background was statistics and operations research, um, not even an IT person. So my, my senior year of college, they do your commissioning physical before you enter the service, and they come back and they say, well, it turns out you're colorblind. I'm like, oh, okay, great. And they said, so you can't be on a ship, you can't be on a sub, you can't you know, necessarily fly airplanes. So it's going to be, you know, you can be a supply officer or a cryptologist. I said, well, I'm an engineer. I'll try this cryptology thing. And so that was in, you know, 96. And so because I'm colorblind, I got stuck in cryptology. And 20 years later, I'm doing the same thing. So I, I wish I had a better story about how I always had a passion for codes and, you know, breaking things. It just wind, wind, you know, turns out that I'm red, green, colorblind. And because of that, 20 years <laughs> later, here I am. Yeah, wow. How about that? That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome, by the way. And so, uh, you know, I'm curious, is it, uh, is it one of those things that was like, um, you know, you, you were, you were watching the hunt for red October. And when they said, you know, Hey, I want to do this uh, cryptology thing. You're like, okay, cool. I can, I can do something. I'm going to be, did you feel like you were going to be like the next Sean Connery or like, what was this all about for you? No, I mean, I mean, the challenge is you, you, you have no idea what you're going to be doing because you ask the people that say, okay, we're going to put you in cryptology and you ask them, okay, what does that mean? And they're going to say, we don't know. So you're basically going in because nobody, you know, it's like fight club, you know, you don't talk about what you do. Right. (laughs) And so because of that, you're basically, you know, choosing the next four years of your life is kind of a crapshoot. You're like, well, nobody can really tell me what I'm going to be doing. And it's not because they're, they're, they're hiding. It's just, nobody knows. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, cryptologic officers, I think there was about 500 of us in the whole Navy. So there wasn't anybody that could really tell you what you were going to do. So that was kind of the interesting dynamic. It really was kind of a shot in the dark as to whether it would uh, turn out good or bad. But I would say, I think it turned out pretty good. And do you, so Matt, what, what did it mean? So, so for me, I got to do some really amazing things. Um, my very first job in the Navy, uh, actually, in the late 90s, cryptology was morphing into network security, believe it or not. So, you know, right out of school, right into the Navy, started going around. We were doing, uh, you know, network security evaluations for, uh, you know, aircraft carriers, you know, large ships. And so we go on to these aircraft carriers and, you know, people were just setting up client server networks. And you go to the servers and it would be, you know, you know, it, w- it was straight out of the movie Top Gun, right? You know, server, username, you know, Maverick, password, you know, Top Gun, username, Goose. I mean, it, I mean, it was it was bad. And so, um, but again, it wasn't bad because people were malicious. It was bad because it was a new, you know, client-server networks on board ships in the mid-90s. Uh, you know, it, it was newer, and they were just setting up you know, networks and, and, and global networks. And you still had those, you know, satellite based, you know, internet and getting, you know, maybe 128, you know, K, you know, connection. So that was my first, you know, I spent a, a couple years doing that. Yeah. So that's interesting parallel. If I remember correctly, Sean Jennings, he was a, he was a, a, a aerospace physicist or something like that. And we were talking with him about Top Gun as well. And I'm like, what the heck? Now Matt's on here talking about Top Gun as well. It's just it, an odd, odd it's, parallelism. It's the, seven, it's, it's, it's the seven level, you know, the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. You know, it all comes back to Top Gun. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's okay with me, by the way. So, um, so like, which is still a good movie, by the way, because if you absolutely. watch it, it's timeless. Because absolutely. they wore the same uniforms and they drove classic cars. It was brilliant. It doesn't yeah. look dated. Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah. we, we 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 had another conversation. We deleted earlier. 
Uh, and Brent, you want to ask him, you know, this whole, his title today is Chief Information Security Officer. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of a, there's been a shift, right? So go ahead. Let's, re, you know, well, let's, yeah, it's Groundhog absolutely. Day. Let's just see this thing again. So Matt, you know, you know, when I called you on the phone prior to uh, recording the podcast, you know, you, you, you introduced yourself as the CISO and yep. uh, we've also heard CISO and CSO. So talk to us about um, the difference, if any, and then also the evolution of kind of CISO and CSO. Yep. No. So, and, and, you know, and, and I'm sure everybody has their own opinion um, and I'm making this as, you know, purely circumspect analysis just based on being in meetings and conferences. I have found that the term CISO tends to be used in a more highbrow environment, I guess you could say. So depending on your audience or your environment, you know, if everybody you're talking to is in a tie, you may find yourself saying CISO. Um, if it is a more, you know, peer-to-peer -peer working group, hey, we're here to get some stuff done, the term CISO gets used more. And that's just my personal opinion, but I do actually find myself using, you know, a different term depending. And, and sometimes, you know, I will hear, you know, if I'm in a meeting and somebody else refers to it as a CISO, I'm like, oh, I better do it too, just so I don't, you know, we're not creating this like, you know, diversion of attention based on, gee, which one is it? But whether it's, you know, theater or theater or data data, it's, you know, one of those, one of those situations. Um, but the evolution of the CSO, you know, it's really interesting because, so if you look at, at Dell Technologies, you know, there, there is a, a CISO, or, uh, you know, you guys are pretty high route, so I will say CISO. There is a CISO Thank at you Dell. For that, yeah. you're, you're welcome, sorry. And, and there is also a CSO. And the idea with the CSO is that, you know, we're managing risk, right? There is no security anymore. Nothing is, quote unquote, secure per se. You're managing risk. And the CSO, you know, also has physical security often in their portfolio. So you have cyber security, you know, IT data security, but also physical. Um, you are also seeing some in the Fortune 200 realm change around, and you start seeing some chief risk officer titles, but not chief risk officer in the old sense of, you know, hey, we're watching where the investments of the company are, and we're watching what the legal risks are. But a um, and so you're seeing some now they're called CIROs, Chief Information Risk Officer, which is an acknowledgement that there is no security. We're trying to manage the risk, right? It's like it's like insurance. If you have a Ferrari, you buy more insurance than if you have a Civic. Why? Because the Ferrari costs more. And we are operating in the insurance game a little bit, depending on the value of what you're trying to protect. You're willing to invest more money or less money. And that's why you're seeing, you know, this evolution of the role to really bring in more of a business sense, which I think is a really good thing. That's actually really interesting. Uh, it's, uh, I hadn't thought about it before, but you kind of mentioned something that sounds a little bit like, um, uh, you know, I was just talking to somebody about the idea of impact investing, right? Where you take something and you say, hey, I believe in something, so I'm going to invest my money into something that I think makes an impact for whatever I believe in, right? You talked about something from a security perspective that's almost like, to me, the idea of golden egg security. Like you might have these other things. You're like, ah, you know, if my if this one thing gets stolen and it's it sounds kind of bad, that's not so good. But then I I have my golden egg, and I'm going to invest heavily to protect my golden egg and kind of leave other things out there on the fringe and maybe invest less. It's almost like an eighty per eighty twenty investment in IT. Do you do you actually do you actually see that? Is that kind of a decision making process when it comes to risk? Absolutely. You've now qualified yourself to be a, you know, 
Fortune 100 CISO. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if you, did y'all hear that out there? <laughs> so, so uh, you know, it, I say almost an identical thing, but I don't use uh, golden egg. I use crown jewels. Okay. And, and the analysis is there's not enough money. And then if you, especially if you look at somebody the size of Dell Technologies, you've got 170,000 people, right? You know, there is not enough money in the world to protect everything. You have to choose what is most important. You know, if you are KFC and the most important thing to you is your secret recipe for chicken or, you know, Coca-Cola, you know, what is the most important critical information? And that's where you need to put your attention. And so, you know, even at the IRS, we did that. Um, if you went on IRS.gov, there was, you know, back then, it's different now, but, you know, there was nothing there that wasn't publicly available already. So all the tax forms, the instructions, all of those different things, they were publicly available. Therefore, yes, we did monitor the website, but we didn't have the same kind of controls or investment into the security of it that we did for all the taxpayer information on the back end to ex because of exactly that theory, which is I only got X amount. I got 10 bucks. And so where am I going to spend that 10 bucks? Because I can spread it really thin and cover more, but give you, you know, an inch deep, or I can focus it on what, if this information was stolen or compromised, I could not function as a company anymore. And that's where our attention needs to be. And that brings in the business focus. And that is a challenge for our field because a lot of folks who are in the CISO or CSO role, we have come up the technology path. We are developers, engineers, architects. And so we know security really well, but put us in front of a board of directors and have us try to explain a security um, operation or a security investment to a board of directors that is interested in return on investment language, and oftentimes we fall down. So in my field, you know, we security people are having to become much more business focused, much more business smart. We're communicating with general counsels. Oftentimes at EMC, I was a dotted line to the general counsel. Um, within Dell, the, the, the chief security officer reports to the general counsel, which is a, a fabulous way to do it because you're showing people that you know, security and risk management is not an IT problem. It's not the CIO's job, right? It's everybody's job. And that's the that's the, the the morphing you're seeing in the the security industry now is you know we are on the hook to become more business savvy than we have been in the past. Yeah, I so think Matt, that's actually for, about that's for everybody. Yeah, don't Matt, you think, Brent? Yeah, absolutely. So Matt, you talked about you know what you what you hope to achieve, right? Protecting the crown jewels, um, whether it's an eighty twenty rule or you know some some something similar. But on a day to day basis. What do you find yourself doing? What's the, the, the typical day in the life of, of Matt, the, the CISO? And, and so, so I, I'll tell you, you know, I'll give you my, my own personal experience it, because it, it, and it is different depending on where you are. There is no homogenous job description of a CISO. If you're the CISO of a bank or a technology company, your day job is very different. If you are in insurance or you're in pharmaceuticals, very different. So, um, within EMC, so in my previous role within EMC, believe it or not, a lot of my time was spent doing 
um, or, or mitigating issues caused not by high tech and not by Russian hackers, but oftentimes it was caused by employees doing something silly, um, almost always not malicious, almost always accidental. And also spending a lot of times working with the IT organizations to get your patching up, right? To do some, so a lot of security is basic hygiene and education and training. So it's not, you know, yes, we are fighting off hackers every day, but that's not everything we do. Um, the amount of people that accidentally click an, you know, an infected something or other in an email and it spreads throughout the organization, no matter how many training sessions and how many times you tell people don't ever do this, it's human nature. It's the psychology. They're still going to do it. And that's actually what I, you know, you find yourself spending a lot of time doing. Within VirtuStream is very different because as VirtuStream, you know, being in a cloud environment, a lot of my time is spent working with customers on how they are deploying and developing and implementing cloud capabilities. So a very different, you know, same title, very different roles. So within within any given organization, um, you know, if you if you read the Phoenix Project, the CISO there is a guy named John, and he is not well liked, right? He's stopping innovation, he's slowing things down, generally pissing people off, right? Just making it tough for them. Yep. Um, how true is that? I mean, that is a fiction book, but based on on some level of truth. Um, but I married a psychotherapist. It was cheaper, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but within organizations, generally, how are you viewed? How is the CISO office, the, the, the person viewed? Yep. And, and so, you know, it, again, it is changing. I think there has been, you know, for a long time, you know, we in this, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Well, because it actually was falling, but the falling sky didn't really affect a lot of other people. In today's world, with all the different huge high profile hacks that have gone on, whether it's commercial or government, and I'm not going to throw out any companies because it happens to all of us. There's an acknowledgement that it's just, you know, when is it, when is it your turn in the barrel? Right? So, you know, there's no glass houses here, but I think a lot of that depends on the personality of the previous person in the role. If the previous person in the role was the type of guy that you described, you know, you just run around saying no to everything, banging your fist, you know, you know, that doesn't work, right? Because, you know, for me to get something done, I need partnership. I need people to work with me, which means, you know, I got to understand their point of view, which is, you know, hey, I can make everything really secure just by turning it off. But then the company makes no money. The company processes no orders. There is a risk to doing business. And we have to be able to, you know, verbalize what that risk is. So for me, you know, Within, you know, EMC and Dell, I always had a very, you know, I, I think that role had a very positive um, view from, from the employees. But I, I think in many situations, it's kind of like the IRS. If the only interaction you have with the U.S. federal government is the IRS, you don't see all the other good things that they do, per se. So in general, if you're not in an IT shop, or in developing apps, or you're not in the general counsel's office worried about, you know, employee, you know, you know, naughty employees doing something bad and doing an investigation. Your only interaction with my organization is going to be if you do something bad and I come and talk to you. And so that's something where I need to work on, you know, that perception. Our annual 
our annual trainings, you know, my interaction with the employees should be more positive and on a more routine basis, not, oh gosh, the security guy's coming down the hall, quick run, right? So, yeah, and, and when, I, when I go talk to people, I talk to people a lot about, um, you know, just simple organizational changes and things like that. And I, I feel personally strong about the concept that um, when you look at something like DevOps and the idea of everybody kind of being at the table together um, from the beginning to create something efficiently, uh, security is one of those things you really have to have at the table at the beginning. If you go out and investigate something, create a huge project, put a bunch of money behind it, go build it, put it out there. At the end, you go, hey, security guy, how awesome is this? You're probably going to get a no. I mean, it's almost impossible to yep. get a yes. But if, if, if your team, part of, you know, somebody, somebody in your organization was at the table from day one going, hey, as we pick this, I need to have these seven things answered and I need to do this and let's shift this and stuff. Along the way, it's going to be cheap, lower cost, more efficient, going to get delivered more secure and everybody's going to be happy. So am I, am I full of it nope. or you're, can no, you valid, no, nope. validate you're, me you're, again? You're, Make me another CISO. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, uh, you know, now, now remembering that, you know, 65% of statistics are wrong and the other 55% are made up, right? So, you know, in general, it's 10x cost at the end of a project to bolt security on and fix it. So if it's a million dollar project and you didn't, you know, it might've cost you a hundred grand to bring security in on the front end, it's going to cost you 10 times that. It's gonna cost you a million bucks to fix that project after the fact. Because now I'm just gonna to have to find hardware and bolt it on and put wrappers around things and it's going to be clunky and it's going to change your performance. So absolutely, especially in the DevOps model, we need to be involved in the front end. Now, in saying that, you know, two caveats. Number one, even, even today, I mean, there's general acceptance that that is absolutely the way to go. Even today, you're constantly finding people who just, you know, we just got to get it done. We just got to get it done. Security guys are going to slow us down. Now, are they going to slow you down? Yes, potentially, but in the same way, you know, the Food and Drug Administration slows down, you know, drugs getting out to the public. They do that for a safety reason oftentimes. But the other challenge is, you know, we on the security side, when we're banging our fists saying you need us at milestone zero, I better have people to provide you at milestone zero when you come to me like the good developer you are and say, hey, I'm doing a new project. I need security help because when you do that and I say, gee, thanks for coming. Unfortunately, I don't have anybody on the bench right now. I'll have a guy in six months. You can't wait six months to start your project. So, you know, there is a, you know, a give and take there where if I am out there advocating for my security people to be involved in a project on day one, I damn well better have enough security people to provide you one on day one. Yeah. And I think you know, that, that is the bad, you know, there's no one side at fault. It is a mutual, you know, we all got to get better at this. And if you're not, if you don't have your person ready, it's on you to pay the 10X, right? So there we go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh. Or, or, you know, or, or I need, you know, 200K for a contractor or something yeah. like that. But, you know, that, absolutely. And so, you know, both sides have to be prepared. And, and I think back to the previous point, you know, if we are developing so many new things, that we don't have the security people to be involved in all of them, should we really be developing all those things right now? <laughs> yeah, you probably, you know, get, yeah, yeah, probably should. The businesses should pri uh, prioritize funding security appropriately as well. So yeah, exactly, and, and making sure within you know within those project forecasts is in general a twenty percent markup for security. 
It just is. That number's been around for a long time. In general, maybe there's an over-under of 18 to 22, but 20% is a generally good, you know, a good gauge. So let's yeah, say, I mean, go with, ahead, with everything, well, I just think <clears throat> with everything becoming connected, with all the data, with all these breaches becoming as high profile as they are, with the with the malware, the, the viruses, all that stuff becoming so um, um, smart in the way that it's doing stuff, like these things can be disastrous, right? So um, security is becoming, I think, more, like as you said, it's, it's becoming more prevalent, more top of mind, and an absolute necessity as we move forward into this world of connected devices. Yeah, and you know, and I'll say, you know, one of the challenges, you know, facing the industry is just like, you know, just like any specialty or any discipline is, you know, there's a finite number of people. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, maybe the Fortune 150 and, you know, the largest 50 government agencies really had a, you know, designated CISO with a, a good, robust staff, right? Well, and, and we call it the cyber poverty index, which is you have the haves and you have the have nots. And now as everybody has become more aware of security and boards of directors want people to be more, you know, really focusing on that, well, we all need to rush out and, and grab ourselves a CISO. Well, there's not enough, right? There's not enough of us. And so when you look at a lot of the large corporations now, and, you know, Dell as well, you know, within Dell, we have a, you know, we have a, a centralized CISO, but then within the, the strategically aligned businesses and the, the business units, we have security officers as well. If you look at General Electric, J.P. Morgan, lots of the large companies, you may find that you have six, seven, eight people who would be a CISO at a Fortune 200 to 500 company. And therefore, you have a small amount of people who are consuming a large percentage of the security executives. And so how do you get, you know, security talent out to those other companies? And, oh, by the way, how do you increase the pipeline to create more? Yeah, so uh, enough of the CISO CISO crap. You know, we're going <laughs> to we're going to shift. The reason we reached out uh, to you and we're excited to talk to you um, was really, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of break down some of this, some conceptions. And like I said, misconceptions and all that around public cloud and security and things like that. We know there are probably some baselines. Um, maybe there's some historical baselines that people have started to shift off of. And I want to learn about all these things. So in general, when it comes to public cloud security, and I'm talking about the uh, public cloud providers infrastructure and not necessarily SaaS models, right? Because I think there's a whole other conversation around SaaS. We'll get into it. Yeah. Um, read an article by David Lithcom. It was saying that public cloud is more secure than your data center. Um, and I have some opinions on that, uh, but I'd rather you as the expert uh, espouse your opinion. So, and by public cloud, I basically mean when it's not your infrastructure with your employees running it, right? Um, yep. So how do you feel about that? And how do you teach people about that topic? So I, I would actually, so, you know, cloud is very scary. And, and, and you know, and I don't know the person and I, and I wish, cause I, I saw him speak at a conference years ago and, and it stuck with me all these years, you know, what is the cloud when it gets down to eye level? Well, it's fog, right? You can't see through it and you got no idea where you're going. It's changed a lot now. And that, you know, I, I think that was back in, you know, maybe 2010 that, uh, that the gentleman made that quote, you know, out is better than what you have now is probably accurate for, you know, 90, 95% of corporate America. Because when you look at the two and a half million per se, you know, businesses out there, 
you know, if you are a cupcake shop or you are a, you know, single physician practice or a dentist and you're keeping all your patient files on a server underneath, you know, uh, the receptionist desk, absolutely moving to a cloud-based environment is better than what you have because you are going to be hosted, you know, in a facility with physical security. They're going to have guards. They're going to have fences. You're going to be on infrastructure that is patched regularly. They will have some manner of security, you know, whether it's 24 by 7 intrusion detection and, you know, malware and anomaly detection, probably not. You have to, you know, buy up for those things. But I think for the majority of people, I think that is an absolutely accurate statement. Um, now, if you look at some of the, the, the smaller pool, you know, now the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, maybe um, largest government agencies, I would say that their security infrastructures are fairly mature. They've been around for a long time. And, you know, in migrating to a cloud-based environment, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's better than what they have now from a security point of view out of the box. Um, and so, and I think what you're seeing is that's also making an assumption. You move everything or you move nothing, right? So when you look at that fortune 500, most people are not moving everything or nothing. They're doing the hybrid cloud where they have identified certain capabilities and certain data sets that either the economics of migrating them into the cloud or, you know, they have a, a, a cloud initiative where they want 10% of their data, you know, migrated to the cloud. You know, in those environments, typically as a CISO, I would have concern about that because I have a very nice, mature security operation. Yes, there's new threats every day that make me have to modify it, but I also have a large, robust staff that's constantly looking at that. So I think that is an accurate statement for the vast majority of people but I wouldn't say it was a 100% accurate statement because there are a lot of really good security operations around. Now, in saying that, cloud providers have gotten smart. Cloud providers in many situations are not just saying, here, dump everything into us and being done. They're saying, hey, if you're going to move this stuff in, I can upgrade my services to offer 24 by 7 intrusion detection. We can talk about malware detection. We can talk about forensics, e-discovery, anomaly detection you now have the capabilities from the cloud providers to start adding some of those capabilities into your cloud migrated data and apps. So yeah, I, I think we're getting there. And so like my, you know, my argument would be as a, as a customer or somebody, you mentioned, okay, the person who has like the file server under the desk, absolutely all day long, because if IT is a part-time job, it should be kind of a no-time job in some cases, right? I mean, there's there's certainly reasons why it should be there, but in most cases, if you can find a way not to do it, it's safer for you and, and easier for you to do. Um, yep. The there, There's a scale though, right? There's all, these other people who have these massive teams and they're fantastic at what they do, um, even to the point where they would argue with you that they can, they can build some things better than a manufacturer might be, and that's also fine for them to do. There's a gray area in between, right? Where you're uh, even a two, three, four, five billion dollar revenue company where you still have two, three, four thousand employees, but running a twenty-four by seven IT shop is hard, and then on top of that, running twenty-four by seven by three sixty-five uh, security, especially when security really drives resiliency and availability, and your your corporate's credibility is really, really hard. Uh, and yeah. I think that's the the gray area where the argument really starts, right? It's like 
uh, well, I need to offload some of this, but without a doubt, most cloud service providers, anybody of reasonable scale, probably something you know around a billion dollars or so, uh, can do it better than you can because you simply don't have the resources or the focus. Yeah, um, and 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 it and it really is. I mean, to to piggyback, it's it's insane yet. I think fairly accurate that you know, even in that five to ten billion rev companies, they're not going to be able to afford it. Oftentimes, and 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 that's the now. And and there's a distinction in in companies. You can't just look at the rev because you can look at some you know one two billion dollar revenue companies, but they are doing you know online banking or they are doing you know some sort of financial transaction based and they damn well better be investing in it or they're not they're going to cease to exist as a company and so you may see a couple like one to two billion dollar companies that have a hundred million dollar security budget because they have to but if you look at some of the some older companies that might be more manufacturing based might have a you know a large footprint maybe thousands of stores and they may be pulling in 10 billion I would agree with you. I, I, I don't think that, you know, in many situations, and honestly, sometimes it's, it's better to either give it to somebody else to do or in some senses not do it because if you do it only halfway, you give your executives and your board of directors a perception that, oh, hey, I got 20 security guys that are doing this all day. Yeah, if you got 20 security guys and your company's 100,000 people, you're not getting what you think you're getting. And I think that is where, to your point, you know, even some of these larger, you know, 10 plus billion dollar companies, you either invest in it and do it right. Or in your, in your cloud migration, you work with your cloud provider to identify the services you need. Yeah. And, the, and I think fundamentally, I believe that people like the Amazons and the Googles and the Azures and even the Rackscape, you know, the Rackspaces and the Virtue Streams who have, um, it's like a funny quote from, uh, what was it? Um, Armageddon, right? It's like, it's like NASA. You got a bunch of people sitting around thinking stuff up and you got people sitting backing them up just thinking stuff up, right? You've got security people end to end whose job it is to do nothing but think about how to protect this versus being jack of all trades, right? They've got to be yep. able to do security better than, than you can. Now the question is, it's an operational issue. And you say, well, I've got all these things, but I don't want to pay OPEX to you know, have somebody else secure them for me. Now, now it's that back to your uh, crown jewels argument of, well, then why don't you think about can the crown jewels be put somewhere where somebody else can secure them better? Um, that's half the argument. I don't know if you see that a lot as well. And then I have a follow yeah. on regarding uh, infrastructure versus SaaS, because I think there's a problem there as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, you hit the nail on the head because, I mean, as the entire IT industry, people are moving away from massive CapEx investments, right? It, it's, you know. As budgets change, you know, and especially after, you know, if you look at like 2008 when the economy, you know, took a header for a while, nobody had CapEx. Everybody started to look for how can I start doing consumption-based IT, right? How can I start doing, you know, moving my IT costs into an OPEX model? How can I be paying a monthly fee as opposed to $10 million up front to buy? And from a security point of view, you know, Absolutely. I mean, because if you're in a, a position where you don't have much of a security operation or your company has grown and your security operation hasn't grown to keep size, it's not just the headcount that you're going to have to fund. You're going to have a significant capex as you go out and buy storage and the tools required. In, in, in a cloud-based you know, offering model, 
you can push, you know, those CapEx costs have already been eaten by the cloud provider. And you're going to be able to start accessing, you know, essentially, you know, major league baseball players at a triple A, you know, potentially cost because you're going to be getting a, you know, you know, OPEX type cost model. So you're, you know, now, you know, nothing is ever perfect, right? And so whenever you're accessing security on a shared service, and, you know, lots of people have tried, you know, security as a service. And security as a service is always really challenging because it still is centered around people. And an investigation might take you a day or it might take you months. And so how do I share those security resources when an investigation might take a month and take 10 people offline? They're not available to the others. So, yeah, I, I, you know, in the cloud world, you are starting to really see you know, additional security offerings. And, and honestly, you know, being, being at VirtuStream, it, it, it's actually one of those shoe, shoe on the other, you know, foot scenarios where, yes, we are offering, you know, additional security capabilities, but we actually have our customers coming and saying, you know, can you do this security capability for us? Can you figure out how to, you know, host our dashboarding? You know, can you, can you host our Splunk? Can you host our NetWitness for us, Right because we don't want to have to worry about the storage anymore, right? The storage component for security is always massive because there's a lot of data that we keep perpetually. And you're constantly having to buy more storage. That's infinitely applicable to a cloud-based environment. Fine, you don't worry about buying more storage, you just you know, pay as you consume. So yeah, we are totally on that, that bandwagon, but it, it's an interesting dynamic where we actually have customers asking us, hey, I have this capability in my infrastructure during our cloud migration, you know, can you also apply this? And, and in certain situations we can, and in certain situations we can't, but we actually try to do that where we will add those capabilities to meet customer demand. Yeah. So, I mean, Brent's over here. He wants to talk, but I've got to ask this. I've been teeing it up for half an hour now. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you, you, look, LastPass is top of mind because they have an issue this week. Um, there is a, there's a fundamental delta that I don't know that ever, it clicks for everybody, so I want to get your point here, where um, your cloud infrastructure and even infrastructure as a service and the APIs of a kind of cloud operating model is somewhat different than the software as a service models that sit on top of those. So for example, I can go consume infrastructure from you and you're going to give me a, a good security model. And then I can go build a poorly secured SaaS on top of that and offer it out to all my customers. Um, and you know, in, in LastPass's experience, they created a, um, you know, an API for something that had a bad security model and it's fundamentally going to cause them a lot of pain to fix it. Um, but they may be running on top of Amazon and it's perfectly secure underneath, right? So there, how, do you, how do you educate people in the idea that SaaS could also be completely insecure uh, in certain scenarios? Not, that's not a blanket statement. Whereas the infrastructure underneath might be well run and, and perfectly secure. There's no such yeah. thing as that either, but still. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, fundamentally, <laughs> there's a couple of different ways. I think, you know, if you look at a cloud migration, and obviously cloud can mean many things to many people. It can be, you know, infrastructure as a service, you know, software as a service, you know, data hosting. I mean, there's a lot of different aspects to what cloud means. But if you look at what capabilities, you know, you're consuming, if you think that you're going to be able to just, oh, I'm just going to migrate my stuff over here to my cloud provider and be done, 
you're probably going to get into the situation that you just described. When you do a cloud migration or you know cloud hosting, it is a partnership, and it is a perpetual partnership, right? Because unless you are 100% outsourcing everything you do to that cloud provider, and I don't know a lot of them that, you know, one-stop shop that will do everything, usually there's going to be multiple people involved. It has to be a relationship. So when you look at the situation you described, somewhere along that line, you know, uh, you know, there has to be – if you're going to allow third parties to be developing it's, – it's like the iPhone, right? You know, you know Apple is very restrictive about you know, what you're allowed to do on the iPhone, and they do do some cursory checks for their apps before they're hosted in iTunes, but they don't do you know, full-on code reviews and pen tests and all of that type of thing. So when you look at you know, what third parties are going to have access to, that has to be a discussion. That should have been a flag. When you have a third party creating some sort of application that will then be disseminated across the masses on something that I am providing the hosting for, you know, I should be raising my hand saying, you know, whoa, 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 you know, because, you know, there's not a ton of case law that I'm aware of on this yet, but there's a lot of discussions about where liability, you know, lives and who's on the hook for this. And, you know, when you read your service level agreements and you read your statement of works with your cloud providers, I always tell CISOs because oftentimes, you know, to be honest, you know, we security people, you know, CIOs oftentimes are very happy to start doing some cloud migrations because they see cost savings there. Oftentimes it's the security officers who are saying, hey, slow down, let's look at how we're doing this cloud migration, right? And one thing that I always tell, you know, my peer CISOs is, Make sure you read your service level agreements. Make sure you read your contracts. Understand where the liability lives, right? And, you know, there's tons of discussions in the industry now. You know, customers are starting to want unlimited liability. Well, nobody's going to provide that, right? And so that liability, you know, you know, last pass, like who's on the hook when something breaks? Is it the infrastructure provider or is it the third party that wrote an app on top of it? Um, you know, you're going to get into the contracts and that, I mean, it's not going to be a security discussion. It's going to be a lawyer and judge discussion. And this is going to be interesting to watch because, you know, even in the technology realm, you know, we all have trouble understanding how some of this works, let alone once this gets to a courtroom trying to get, you know, you know, judges and attorneys to really be able to fundamentally understand the difference in the OSI stack and where, where the compromise took place. Well, it took place at the, you know, you know, the transport layer or the application, not in the infrastructure. It's going to be a really curious, uh, you know, courtroom discussion. And for me, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to say I'm anxious for, the, for, for a case like that, but at some point, somebody has to, you know, have this discussion. Well, great segue, Matt, into the next topic. You brought up reviewing contracts and reviewing SLAs. Now, you wrote a blog post called Building the Modern Data Center on a Foundation of Trust uh, not long ago. Um, in there, you talk specifically about SLAs, but new security challenges. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you could kind of summarize that, that, that blog post you wrote, and then if we can dive into some of the best practices that uh, we can take from you know, some of the large cloud service providers, some of the hyperscalers. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think my, you know, Having, when I was with RSA, I spent a lot of time you know, going around. We, you know, we were building security operation centers, 24 by 7 operations for you know, large companies, you know, countries, you know, that type of thing. 
And what we were seeing is, you know, people were moving to, you know, data centers. And, and, and that, again, just like cloud, that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And, and now they've started transitioning to the software-defined data center, which, you know, is very cloud-like, you know, in, in many respects. And one of the things that I was, you know, advocating for in, you know, when I wrote that was a lot of security best practices relate 100% to data center practices, right? The, the two are not, you know, they're, they're, they're first cousins, <laughs> right? You know, so when you're talking about, you know, in a data center, in a modern data center, you know, you know what should you be looking at? And, and, you know, I was advocating for, you know, don't just be looking for performance and cost. You have to understand that when you start centralizing data, whether it's just your own or you're going to start, you know, co-locating customer data in a data center like this, you have to be thinking about security. But if you think about security at the front end, back to a previous discussion, when you're designing that data center, security can be an enabler, right? Because if you apply certain security capabilities, you know, you don't need all, you know, if you look at what, a, a, what my laptop has for security capabilities right now, I don't need all of them in a data center, right? You might not have users per se, the way you do with a, a, a desktop. You might be using a micro VM or might be using, you know, you know, virtual machines. Therefore, you're not as concerned about, you know, malware and patching because when you're done with the session, the machine goes away, right? And so when you're looking at these data centers, look at where your risks are. You know, they're at the perimeter. They're at, you know, the data. They're at, you know, how the data is moving around. That's where your security focus should be. Oftentimes, we security people, you know, we're going to come into a data center and say, oh, show me your virus scanning. Why? You know, I mean, why, why show me your virus scanning? You know, what, what is its applicability, you know, per se in a data center? You know, I would be more interested in show me, you know, where you're using SSL or, you know, HTTP. You know, show me how you're transporting data you know, between machines, how is that data encrypted? Show me where your perimeter monitoring is. And so as we are moving into centralized services and centralized data, we in the security business have to stop thinking client server mentalities, stop being focused on, you know, what, what operating system version and virus scanning do I have? And if you don't have that, then you're not compliant. Look at the overall environment. Take a step back, look at the forest, see what you're trying to protect, and apply the security capabilities that are applicable to what you're trying to protect. And I think that's more like my industry. We security guys oftentimes focus on the wrong things, and, and sometimes you've got to be willing to take a little bit of a risk because you know, nobody wants to be the security guy that ripped out virus scanning. Right? Because there was like, oh, you didn't have virus scanning. Yes, but it was a zero day malware. Virus scanning would have done nothing about it. Well, yes, but everybody should have virus scanning. You know, I don't disagree, but should you really be spending 20% of your security budget on virus scanning that doesn't actually mitigate any of the threats that we're talking about today? Right? But that takes a little bit of a backbone when you're going to go to your CIO or somebody and say, look, I want to reallocate where we're spending money. I think we should be focused at the transport layer. At the application layer, you know, you know, do we need physical firewalls anymore, or should we be looking at some of these firewall-on-demand companies, right? If we are in a cloud-based environment or a you know SaaS environment, 
there are, you know, SaaS security capabilities where I can spin up and spin down security capabilities just like a VM. But I got to convince everybody else who's been used to standard desktop builds, lots of firewalls around the perimeter that, you know, that infrastructure won't necessarily do anything for a data center. Cool. So Matt, we're, I know you've got a hard stop at the top of the hour. And so I want to be respectful of your time. So I've got one last question for you and we'll shut it down. But um, in your world, what is the, the coolest thing that you see on the horizon uh, in the world of security technology? Honestly, I can tell you what I would love to see. <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to take a step back from, you know, the corporate, you know, CISO guy here um, protecting, you know, the crown jewels and take a step back to a personal level, right? You know, having, having young children and constantly watching, you know, what they're doing and what they're accessing. I am very hopeful that, you know, Sometime soon, somebody is going to figure out, and I and I know that it would break a lot of things. But you know, we talked a lot about data, data privacy and things like that. You know, on a personal level, I'm very disturbed with you know the amount of information about you know me or my children or anybody else that is bought, sold, collected with no consequences. And oh, by the way, I don't even legally have the ability to opt out. And if I did, I have to send like a certified lawyer letter to you know. Address X in California, and you may or may not hear back. I am I am hoping that you know, sometime in the near future, there's going to be a capability for mobile devices, you know, i.e., phones, where I, the user, can actually, you know, and and I don't know, I'm not talking about you know, would you allow, you know, would you like this app to access, you know, your location services? I'm talking about, you know, all my information on my device is. On, you know, it's controlled by me. I have to intrinsically allow App X to access different pieces. I'm hoping somebody's working on it. It's not out there yet, but you know, when it is, I'll be the first one to buy it because you know I am significantly concerned, and not just about the amount of information that's being collected, but also culturally how you know, as a country, because in Europe it's different, but you know, as a country in the U.S., we're generally okay with everybody just taking and holding and buying and selling all of our data. <laughs> yeah, I don't and, I don't honestly think know. we're okay with it. I just think that the uh, quote-unquote corporations that are quote-unquote individuals have uh, been able to fund Congress in a manner that allows them the... the uh, I mean, they literally, our own legislature um, gave them their monopolies. Uh, and, the, you know, our own laws give them their monopolies by which we have to consume from very specific people. Yep. And then those people are allowed to watch everything that we do and then sell it for a profit on top of that. Um, and we don't have a way to, to pick and create competition in a marketplace, which may have a, comp a competitor that would actually offer us privacy. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mean, so if, if there was actual competition in service providers this conversation wouldn't exist. And that's the real problem is that, um, you know, the whole baby bell thing disappeared and we're back yep. to, you know, basically you can have AT&T or you can have carrier pigeon uh, because you're going to use yeah. AT&T. Uh, so yeah. those kind of or things. Or you can have AT&T or a third party who actually rides over AT&T signals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, I mean, like I've literally been considering this week, uh, even though it would be like a pain in my not in like my neck is just to implement IPv6 because I don't think that their monitoring tools are as good over there. Like you said, they invest where their strengths are. 
Uh, I've yep. been considering doing that just because I feel like they aren't monitoring as well. It's probably a fallacy. I'm still thinking about it. So. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, you know, I, you know, as somebody that uses Tor, you know, you know, everybody's like, you know, the, the perception is, oh, why are you trying to hide something? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, actually, yes, I'm trying to hide, you know, <laughs> basically everything about me from everybody who's monitoring it. But I'm a security guy and I'm paranoid by by trait anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, high five. there. That was a virtual high five yeah. for those who couldn't see it. Yeah. So, uh, again, we appreciate Matt. We appreciate everything we know, uh, besides the fact that I screwed it up and lost roughly seven, seven minutes of your uh, delicious insights. Um, <laughs> you do have a hard stop. So with that, Brent, let's kill this thing. Absolutely. So, uh, Matt, first and foremost, thank you for being on the podcast. It was wonderful. We have gobs and gobs more content that we could dig into with you, and maybe it'll have to be a repeat episode. Uh, oh, I'm I'm happy on. to happy to do it. Any I, I could never outdo Sean Jennings, but I'm happy to to do it again. <laughs> well, cool. So, um, uh, last question for you: uh, What's a great place uh, that that you go to find information? And, and this time, we're going to be specific uh, on. Uh, security trends and and how you're kind of sitting at the forefront of technology uh, in in that world. Is there a website, a trade rag, something like that? Yep, Krebs on security. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Krebs yep. is dope. And, and I think you know it's one of those you know everybody you know everybody in the industry reads it in the morning, and if you if you don't, you should. You know, because it, it talk about trends. You know, identifying which you know industries are getting hit first. That's where it happens. Great. Awesome. Yep. Thanks for that suggestion. And so for all of our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in today. Uh, let us know what you thought about the episode. Get social with us and uh, let us know what other topics you want to hear about, right? These are recommendations from a lot of our listeners out there, and we certainly appreciate that. So uh, thanks for listening. We're shutting the hot aisle down today. I'm Brent Piotti. And I'm Brian Carpenter. And Mr. Matt McCormick, thanks for being on. My pleasure. Thanks, guys.